One of the things that I love about December is that the movies that become recommended online and on streaming services, they're all holiday-themed films. And the, the biggest difference between, like, fall and winter is in the fall, especially in October, we have to, like, have our girls close their eyes during most of the commercials because they're all for, like, these terrifying Halloween uh, fil films that are just supposed to scare you, and everything is, like, and now it's, like, it feels like everything we can watch as a family. And uh, I'm so thankful for that. But when I, when I think of sort of the October films and the popularity around those sort of things, we clearly live in a society that has a fascination with spirituality, with uh, good and evil. And, you know, what do we do with that as, as a church? How do we approach this conversation about the fact that there is a spiritual world going on and that there are spiritual matters at stake and how do we lean into that? And C.S. Lewis, in one of his, in his, he, wrote a letter, he wrote a book called The Screwtape Letters, and in his introduction to it, he said that there are two equal and opposite errors in, to which are, in which humans fall into when it comes to devils or demons. And he said one, on one end, is to disbelieve in their existence. And there are people out there who don't believe in spiritual things like demons and angels and God and Satan. They, they think there's a natural explanation for everything. They would be naturalists. But then he said on the other end is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. So we're not demon chasers. We don't think there's a demon behind every problem and every rock. But we're also not unaware of the enemy's schemes. And this morning, we're going to look at a passage as we're finishing our series in Ephesians. It's a very familiar passage. If you grew up in church, you almost certainly heard this taught on in children's church at some point. It's the armor of the Lord. And in this passage, Paul is talking about spiritual battle. And I want us to look at this together, beginning in verse 10. Paul says, a final word. Here he is summarizing his great letter to the church in Ephesus. A final word. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against all strategies of the devil. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in the stark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Therefore, put on every piece of God's armor so you will be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. Then, after the battle, you will be standing firm. Stand your ground, putting on the belt of truth and the body armor or the breastplate of God's righteousness. For shoes, put on the peace that comes from the good news so that you will be fully prepared. In addition to all of these, hold up the shield of faith to stop the fiery arrows of the devil. Put on salvation as your helmet and take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Pray in the spirit at all times and on every occasion. Stay alert and be persistent in your prayers for all believers everywhere. And pray for me too. Ask God to give me the right words so I can boldly explain God's mysterious plan that the good news is for the Jews and the Gentiles alike. I am in chains now, still preaching this message as God's ambassador, so pray that I will keep on speaking boldly for him as I should. In this passage, Paul brings out this language of war and battle. And I know some of you actually served our country and have seen battle, but many of us have not. However, we can all relate to battles, right? Every single one of us has battles that we deal with, battles with our emotions, uh, battles with our past, battles with temptation, battles with sin, uh, battles with our emotions, with our 
fear, with our anxiety. Yesterday, uh, my daughters and I were watching this National Geographic um, documentary on the rescue of those. Do you remember those 13 um, soccer players in Thailand that were caught in the cave in 2018? And, uh, and actually, as someone that we know well, Derek Anderson, who's related to the Anderson family, is in this documentary quite a bit because he was on the ground leading the effort to get these boys rescued. And it's a fascinating documentary, and I'm watching it with my daughters, and they're just riveted. I, and afterwards, Caroline, my 10-year-old, said to me, I, I felt so funny during that. I had this funny feeling I've never felt before watching that movie. And she began to explain it to me, and I realized she was explaining anxiety. And she's like, I don't ever feel this way. And I was like, enjoy it. <laughs> enjoy it. Because uh, a lot of us feel that way a lot of the time. Um, but it made, me, it made me realize that all of us, we don't get through life without battling things around us. But how many of you have learned the biggest battle usually is not outside of you? The biggest battle is inside of us. What Paul does here is so helpful, and I don't know if you feel like you're in a battle this morning, if you're losing it, if you're winning it, if you're about to give up on it, but wherever you're at, I think the Lord has something to say to us about how do we win our battles, and ultimately, here's, here's sort of the spoiler alert. It's his battle, and he's going to win it. So what do we do? Three things we learn in this text. The first thing is, is that we win our battles in his strength. Verse 10, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. I'm so glad Paul didn't say, be strong in the Lord and in your power. What bad news that would be for you and for me. But Paul says right off the bat, be strong in the Lord and find your strength in his strength. It's his power that gives us strength. And one of the reasons why we need to battle in his strength is because of who we are. Let's be honest, it's who we are that's the problem. We don't have it in us to win these battles. And the reasons why we can't win these battles is half the time we can't even see the battle that we're fighting. We're too busy defending ourselves and calling it not a battle, <laughs> calling it something else to realize it really is a battle. Often we are the reason for our own battles. We create our own mess. And then there's other times where we're fighting the wrong battles. And we're a church that is distracted from the only battle that really matters, the battle for the kingdom of God, and we start fighting all these lesser battles. And that's really what you and I bring to every battle, is our inability to see, our inability to understand, our unwillingness to own up, and our inability to win. So it can't be in us. There's such a well-known story in the Old Testament of David and Goliath, and often when we hear that story, we think, if we would just be like David and, and have the boldness that he had and grab the stones and go out and fight Goliath, but you and I are not David in that story. We're the Israelites. We're the ones that won't fight. We're the ones that even question the victory that's been provided for us. And years after David, God sends Jesus, the true hero, and just like David was doubted by the people that he was sent to save, the people that Jesus came to didn't believe in. And just like David went out and won a battle for us that we couldn't win for ourselves, that's what Jesus did for us. And just like all the um, glory and all of the loot from the battle became the Israelites, even though they never lifted a finger to win that battle for themselves, all of Jesus' rewards are ours, even though we never lifted a finger to win the battle for ourselves. We're not David, we're the Israelites, but we have a David. We have a greater David, a true and better David in Jesus. And it's his strength in which we fight. Another reason why we need to fight in his strength is not just because who we are, but it's because who we are fighting. Verse 12, we're not fighting against flesh and blood. 
Listen, if, if we just had a fight with each other, we're pretty well equipped for that. <laughs> We've spent our lifetime figuring out how to fight that battle. But that's not the battle we're fighting. We're fighting evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world. Paul doesn't pull any punches there. He calls them mighty powers. In this, He's not saying that the things that we're fighting are smaller and significant. He's saying what you're up against, it's like the old saying, you're bringing a knife to a gunfight. You don't have what it takes to win this battle in your own strength. But in his strength, we can find victory. I, I thought this morning as I was driving here and thinking about this message, I thought of this scene from one of my favorite Disney movies, The Lion King, where Simba and Nala are still pups, and they end up caught in a cave where there's those hyenas that are, are giving them a hard time. And Simba tries to be brave, right? And he tries to do a big roar to scare away the hyenas, and his roar is this pathetic little meow, and he tries it, and they're laughing at, it, and laughing at him, and he tries it again, and they're laughing at him. And unbeknownst to him and to the hyenas, now Mufasa, the lion king is standing behind his son and when Simba goes to roar a third time Mufasa roars and the hyenas realize oh we're in trouble there's something else going on here you and I will not win battles because we can roar because we can muster up energy and strength and determination but it's the king who stands with us who it's in his strength that we fight this is a real battle and we cannot fight this enemy in our own strength. It's in his strength. Second thing that we see in this text is it's in his armor. I want to talk about this armor. Um, He says, put on God's armor. Paul says, put on God's armor so that you'll be able to stand firm. You know what's amazing? I hadn't, I don't know why I never thought of this before, but remember, Paul's writing to the church in Ephesus, and where is he? He's in a Roman prison. Paul is likely chained to a Roman guard who's wearing this armor. So as Paul is writing this, He's looking over at the soldier, and he's seeing the armor that he wears. And, and this, this is becoming a reference point for Paul to begin to provide this timeless teaching that has helped Christians for 2,000 years and is helping us today. This Roman soldier unwittingly is sitting for his portrait as Paul begins to talk about things like the belt of truth. He says, put on the belt of truth. Now, when a soldier tightened his belt, it meant he was ready for combat. It was about the last thing he would do. Uh, one of the illustrations I read in my commentary was imagine a football player, you know, just getting ready, putting his pads on, putting, putting his jersey on, putting his mouth guard in, putting his helmet on, adjusting his pads, hitching up his waist for the very, and then going out on the field for the next play. This is what Paul is sort of creating an imagery of that. This is, this is getting ready to go out to fight. But what the soldier did was even more crucial because his belt, the belt that a Roman soldier would wear, it held everything in place. Do you hear that? The belt held everything in place. Without it, he would be powerless in battle. And Paul says that truth performs this crucial function in spiritual warfare. Truth holds the spiritual armor in place and safeguards us against deadly entanglements. And for Christians, truth is not just a set of beliefs. It's not just a dogma. It's not just doctrine. It's not even just theology. Truth is a person. Jesus is truth. And so when we say that truth holds all things in place, what we're saying is that Jesus Christ himself holds everything in place. He holds us in place. And so when we put on the belt of truth, we are putting on the truth of the person of Jesus Christ. And he is the one who holds us in place for the battle. The second thing that he talks about is the breastplate of righteousness. Now, this this breastplate, which in the Greek would have been the thorax, was a metal piece that covered the front of the body. 
And it, it, its function was to, to make sure that the thrust of swords and arrows, would, would, that it would not pierce through. It would protect the vital organs, especially the heart. And this is what righteousness does. The breastplate of righteousness is God's own righteousness. It's not you on your best day. It's God at his best. It's his righteousness freely given to those who truly believe in Jesus Christ. You cannot generate this on your own. In other words, you cannot make your own breastplate of righteousness. You can only receive the breastplate of righteousness from God. Isaiah 64, the prophet says that all of our very best efforts are like dirty rags. Romans 6 says that no one is righteous, no one seeks God, that we're worthless, which literally means we are rotten. And then in Romans 3, Paul doubles down and says, all have sinned, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But the good news in Romans 1.17 is this, but there is a righteousness from God. <laughs> I hope that excites your spirit this morning. There is a righteousness from God, that he gives us his righteousness. What this means is that what saves you isn't from you, right? What saves you isn't from you, and what saves you is what has been done for you. So what do we do? I'm going to give you a bunch of R words to try to hold on to, because this helps me. What do we do? We remember, we rehearse, we receive, we rejoice, and we rest in his righteousness. Think of how different our daily lives would be if we would do this, if we would remember, rehearse, receive, rest in, and rejoice in the righteousness of God. So much of our problems is us trying to manufacture our own righteousness. Well, we wouldn't say it that way, but it's us trying to prove our goodness to other people in a variety of ways when Jesus has given us his. One final thought about the breastplate of righteousness that I think is interesting is that these breastplates did not have sides and they did not have backs. There was nothing protecting the side of a Roman soldier or the back of a Roman soldier. There's a lot of reasons for this, including the fact that they were not supposed to retreat. But one of the reasons is because they were not supposed to fight alone. They were supposed to stand side by side. And their safety, the effectiveness of the breastplate, only worked as it was intended when they stood together. Now, how, how true is that for Christians? We might think, I got everything I need from Jesus. I can go alone. You can't go alone. The, the New Testament teachings, the, the writers of the New Testament would have had no framework for an isolated Christian. They, they would have had no way of processing somebody saying, I'll do this on my own. And this idea that we have to stand shoulder to shoulder in the battle, I think there's something for us to learn. And it's this, that we have to stand together to enjoy the full blessings of what Christ has done for us. And listen, to protect your brother and your sister. It's not just about you. It's about the people standing with you. And when you get out of alignment with community, not only do you endanger yourself, you endanger other people who need you to stand by their side and fight with them and together wear the breastplate of Christ's righteousness that has been given to us. Paul next talks about the shoes, the peace that comes from the good news, the preparation of the gospel. And the image that Paul has in mind here is the Roman soldier's war boot. It was an open-toed leather boot. And on the sole of the boot, there were nails, a heavily nail-studded sole, that, and it would be tied to the ankles and to the shins with straps. So these big boots, and on the bottom were nails, so that it was almost like an ancient form of uh, cleats, you know, that athletes wear now to give them better footing. And these boots were not made for running. These boots were made for marching. They gave foot traction, and they prevented sliding. So, so much of ancient battle, of course, now, to, now today, with all modern technology and everything, we fight from thousands of miles away from each other. But back then, they fought inches away from each other. 
And so much of ancient fighting back then was hand-to-hand and foot-to-foot and up close. And like a line of scrimmage in football, the boots for these soldiers gave them advantage over those that they were fighting that might not have had the same quality. So it was the readiness of what Paul's talking about here is this idea that you won't fall in the midst of battle. You're planted on solid ground. The enemy will not be able to push you back. Rather, you will be able to advance. And the spiritual lesson here is clear. The gospel of peace, the peace that comes to us in and through the gospel, in and through the gospel, it makes us immovable in battle. It helps us stand our ground. And there's two types of peace that Paul's actually referencing here. One is a fact and one is an experience. The fact is peace with God. You know, when the angels came to the shepherds, one of the things they said is peace between God and humankind. So there is the fact of peace with God. That's that we've been saved and that our hearts are made right with God and we have peace with God. That is a fact. If you've placed your trust in Jesus, it really doesn't matter how you feel today. That is true. Okay? But then there's not just peace with God. There is the peace of God. And that's an experience. And they're connected because you can't have the second one without the first one. If you don't have a growing awareness and appreciation for the peace with God, then you'll never grow in having a peace, the peace of God. And what a gift in this world today, in the midst of chaos and crisis, to have the peace of God, to have the peace of God. And in that, we have the promise of Jesus. He said to his disciples, peace I leave you, my peace I give to you. He gives us this promise. And the peace, the word that Jesus used there is shalom, which means completeness, soundness, and welfare. So this peace keeps us steady and upright in battle. The next thing he talks about is the shield of faith. So this would not have been a small, a small, there was a small shield that they would use at times, but the word Paul uses here is this is a large shield. It's about four feet high and two and a half feet wide, very much like carrying a door in front of you. And in fact, this was a shield that they would use side by side to protect them. And it was made of two layers of laminated wood. The first was covered with linen and then with hide, uh, the hide of an animal. And it was bound top and bottom with iron, with an iron ornament decorating it. A man could put his entire body behind it to absorb javelins and arrows of the enemies. And in the case of flaming arrows, very often the arrow would snuff out because it would bury itself into the thickness and the hide of the shield. So they made these shields specifically to put out these fiery arrows that would be shot at them in battle. And as we are battling in warfare, one of the commentaries said this, the enemy launches repeated volleys of blazing arrows, temptations and strategies and deceptions to inflame us and bring our demise. But up come our shields of faith as we trust God and his word into which those hot arrows thud harmlessly. And what is our faith in? Our faith, listen, our faith is in what God has done what he is doing, and what he will do. It's the, it's the tenses of faith. We have faith in what he has done. We can look back to his faithfulness. We can have faith that he knows what he's doing today and right now, and we can believe with faith that he will complete the work that he began. That's his expertise, finishing what he started. And this faith protects us from the lies of the enemy. And we put faith in his power and in his purposes, means, means what we put faith in his ability to intervene, but also we put faith in the fact that he knows better than we know. So sometimes we want his power, but not his purposes. God, do things my way, and I, and I don't want to hear about it if you have a different way. <laughs> sometimes we put faith in uh, his purposes, but we forget about his power, and it becomes almost fatalistic. See, his power and my purpose leads to disappointment. My power and his purposes will lead to defeat. But when we have faith in his power and his purposes, we can stand in battle. 
Next, Paul says to put on the salvation, uh, the helmet of salvation. Uh, My study, I read that when the helmet was strapped in place, nothing was exposed except for the eyes, the nose, and the mouth. Virtually the only weapon that could penetrate a metal helmet were hammers or axes. No soldier's uniform was complete without a proper salvation or a proper helmet. When Paul says, put on salvation as your helmet, what he's saying is this. The helmet of salvation is the assurance of your salvation and the confidence that it brings because a helmet is a confidence builder. You feel brave. I remember uh, this this past Saturday night, I went to the Syracuse football game with some friends. This is a terrible game because they're a terrible team. But, um, but we were there, and we were having an okay time trying to make the best of it. And the, we were sitting on the side of the field where the Pittsburgh mascot was, like, doing his thing. This panther, the Pittsburgh Panther is, like, mocking the crowd and, and working up. And, and I'm just thinking, and I, and I said to the people I was with, I said, that's actually got to be such a fun job because, like, no one knows who you are. Like, you can do whatever you want. You got that thing over your head. You can become anybody. And it's like, it's like this, this, this shield of courage, uh, this helmet of courage that allows you now to go, I'm, I'm secure because they don't even know who I am. And in a similar way, the helmet of salvation gives us this confidence that we can stand and be sure because we're covered in the salvation of God. The helmet would enable a person in battle to stand otherwise where he would have been long gone. Now, I want you to consider this picture, the helmet of salvation being placed on our heads by the nail-pierced hands of Jesus at our moment of conversion. And the helmet assures us, listen, that whatever happens, we will be saved and we will experience victory in Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved. And that verb, you have been saved, is in the perfect passive participle, which means you have been saved and the results of it go on and on and on. Here's the result. Remarkable, listen, the helmet of salvation. Remarkable confidence amidst the battles of life. Remarkable confidence. And then the last thing that Paul says is the sword of the spirit. Now, it's interesting. You've maybe noticed. Up until this point, everything's been defensive, right? No weapons. Uh, but now he puts forth a weapon that is primarily offensive, although you would also use the sword, of course, defensively. This would be the Roman's double-edged short sword. It was a most effective weapon when you were fighting hand-to-hand. And this word of the Lord becomes our tool, our weapon against God. We see this even in the temptation in the desert, the duel between Christ and Satan in Matthew 4, where Satan three times tempts Christ. Christ comes back at him, how? Three times with the word of the Lord. And the, the lesson is obvious, right? If Jesus Christ, the Son of God, needed the word of God to fight off the enemy, how much more do you and I need the word of God? We need to know his word. And that's why the psalmist said, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. It's important to realize he didn't say, I've hidden your word in my head. We can memorize scripture and it may not get into our hearts. We can read the Bible and it may not break in on who we are. But what does it mean to hide the word of God in our hearts? It means that it begins to change us and shape us from the inside out. And the word of God gives us the power to fight off. So here's what the enemy wants to do. This is how the enemy fights. It really, his tactics have never changed from Genesis 3 to the end, until he's defeated in Revelation. His tactics have never changed. He comes to us and he questions God's word. Did he really say? And, and I read something this week that said most of the reasons why we struggle in our lives and we sin in our lives is because we don't believe the joy that's before us. 
we don't really believe the joy God has for us in serving him, so we go other places looking for that joy. Did he really say, and it's in the word of God that we look at and we say, this is what he really said, and this is what is true, and it's our sword in the battle. So we fight from his victory, we fight in, or sorry, we fight in his strength, we fight in his armor, and then lastly, Pastor Anthony is gonna join me, we fight from his victory. We stand in his victory. Listen, there's a big difference for Christians. We're not fighting for victory, we're fighting from victory. The victory has already been won. See, the reason why Paul gives us a posture that is almost entirely defensive, and we are told three times in this passage to stand. Paul doesn't really say, Take your, go fight. He says, stand. And the reason he says stand is because Christ has already won the victory. In fact, the imagery that Paul uses here is from the book of Isaiah, where we see the Lord and our Messiah dressed for battle, that it's the Lord who dresses for battle and goes out before us. And we stand in his victory. Listen, you and I, we may lose battles, but we will not lose the war because the war has already been won. Jesus Christ has already won the war for us, and we fight from a place of victory. There is an accuser. He's real. This passage makes it clear. There are evil powers. There are principles of evil. There are things, there are things that want to destroy our lives that are at work. There is an accuser of our souls, and he's, oh, here's what the accuser is doing. The accuser is always speaking against you. You know his voice. You've heard it. You're not good enough. You're a loser. You can't make it. If people knew what you thought, if people knew this, that, or the other, you know, you've tried hard and you failed. How are you going to get it right this time? God's done with you. People are giving up on you. That's what the acute, you know the voice because you've heard it. And sometimes it's been a voice that's come from a family member, come from a coworker, come from somebody who speaks death over you. The accuser is always speaking against us, but do not lose hope because there is an advocate who is always speaking for us. Jesus is speaking for his people. Earlier this week, I read this post online from Christine Kane, who's a wonderful woman preacher. And uh, man, this spoke to my heart this week. I wanted to read this to you. And she said, I feel strongly to encourage you to really pay attention this week. Do not be ignorant of the enemy's devices. Don't let the accuser of the brethren have more real estate in your mind than your advocate, Jesus. The enemy is a deceiver and lying is his native tongue. He only comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Don't allow, faith to sab- don't allow fear to sabotage your faith. And then this sentence really spoke to me. Don't allow what you don't know about the future to eclipse what you do know about your God. Come on. Don't allow what you don't know about the future to eclipse what you do know about your God. Don't allow a temporary setback to weaken your resolve to finish. Don't allow someone else's agenda to thwart God's purpose in your life. Don't allow anyone else's words to have more power in your life than God's word does. You are who God says you are. You can do what God says you can do. You can be who God says you can be. The Lord fights our battles. He goes before us. He is victorious. We may fall, we may stumble, but he never does. He never has. He's never lost a battle. 
And even in the darkest moment of history where it looked like all had been lost, it was just a setup for the greatest moment of victory three mornings later when Jesus rose from the dead and said, it's all done, it's finished, I've done enough. Let's sing this song together, champion, just this chorus, let's stand together.